series of messages on the last day. And um, so if you're joining us, we're in message number four. And um, we're doing this because we believe it's, it's important to the Bible, it's important to the church, it's important to God that everything that has been given to us is surging forward towards the end. And this particular message is, is on, on hope of what we will experience after the day of judgment when believers and unbelievers are brought before the throne of God. This is what we experience as believers afterwards. And the texts I'm going to be using are two primary ones, although I'm going to be kind of giving you a bunch of texts, which will be on the screens behind me. But if you want to turn to the two main ones, it will be Genesis 2 and Revelation 2. If not, you can just follow on the, on the, the screen behind me. When I think of how important hope is, and hope in home in particular, uh, one of the images that comes to my mind or stories that come to my mind are, is the, the, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, when Dorothy and Toto were whisked away by the twister to the uh, place somewhere over the wa- rainbow, uh, they landed in the land of Oz, which was a very, very unfamiliar and strange place. A place where scarecrows talk, monkeys fly, uh, trees throw apples, land of munchkins, witches, a very different place. And yet in the story, there's one thing and one thing only that drives young Dorothy in her adventures on and off the yellow brick road, and that is the hope of home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home, to the point she is willing to take on an evil witch. Well, I can relate to that story because um, we lived as a, as a family. Actually, it was just Deanna and I and our, our young baby in Chicago. I should back up. We lived there for four years. And uh, Chicago is not the Wizard of Oz or the, or the Land of Oz, but it is a bit strange, especially for a boy who grew up in California and a young woman who grew up in, in Washington State. And Chicago is flat as a pancake. About the only place you can get any elevation is on an overpass, or you go to the top of the Sears Tower. That's it. There are no mountains. Um, it is cold, really cold in the wintertime, and it is hot and humid in the summertime. And that never felt to us like home, because we're West Coasters, you know? We, we always wanted to be back at the West Coast. That's where our heart was, uh, California boy and Washington woman. But the churches that were looking at us were from Alberta, Canada, and North Dakota. Now, I realize there are probably some people who love North Dakota. I am not one of them. That was the only stranger place to me than going to Chicago. But our hearts wanted to be back here. And so I still remember the day. It was uh, September 7th, 1997, and John Hansen called, left a message on our voicemail and says, hey, um, we have uh, voted to have you come and be our teaching pastor. And I just thought, we're going home to California. It was the first thing I thought. And I was elated. I didn't know any of you back then. I was elated. We were overjoyed. We were just totally stoked as a family to head back towards family and back towards the place that we feel is home, that place of longing, the place where your heart is. And I still remember we packed up all of our stuff in a 19-foot budget rental moving truck. Deanna flew on ahead. Me and my brother-in-law and father-in-law decided we're going to make a long trek through all those really boring states. 
And then we got to the western part of Nevada, and you could see the, the, the uh, Sierras rising. And I'm just thinking, oh, I'm almost home. I'm almost home. And then we chugged up the uh, Sierra Mountains in our moving truck, which was grossly underpowered, moving like 10 or 15 miles an hour. And I still remember crossing our border. And I just felt tears come up because I thought, oh, we're back home. That, that song, you know, California, here I come, kept going through my mind. It's like we're back home, finally back in the land where we belong. Well, I, I believe that every Christian should have the same kind, a greater longing than that. That's how they should feel about the future, about the future home, the last day is there should be this sense of, I don't belong here, I belong somewhere else. I don't fit here, I fit somewhere else. My heart is fixed on another place, another time, and another person. That's how we should feel. And it's what we're hoping and praying that God does through these series of messages. Most of us have our eyesight set on this world, and we have gotten much too comfortable. And we've tried to make home here. But we'll never be faithful unless we long for and we look for and we yearn for the there, the home that the Lord has promised to us and and died to bring us. So we're hoping that the Holy Spirit will take and give us an intensified hope for the future because if it's there, then like Dorothy, you you will endure any suffering and you will stand up under any attack because you're living for something else. And you know, Jesus told us that we do not belong to this world. I mean, the New Testament, over and over again, Jesus said that his disciples are not of this world. They don't belong here. That's John 17, verse 16. The Apostle Paul said to us that our citizenship is not here in the United States. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Or the Apostle Peter said in his first letter, he said that we as believers are sojourners and exiles. We're in exile right now. Our homeland is not here. And when our hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, know that we're not, we don't fit here, that we're sojourners, strangers, and exiles, and we want to be at the other place, then it changes things right now, how we live. In fact, the degree to which our heart yearns for the final day and what will happen there, what we'll experience there, our future home, is the degree to which we'll find courage and strength and faithfulness in the present life. One of the problems, though, or obstacles to us desiring our future home that I have found is that when it comes to the body of Christ, the church, the people in it, disciples, there's a lot of confusion and false images that come to mind when you think of heaven or our future home. For some, what comes to mind when you start talking about heaven are images from Greek mythology or or fairy tales of of bouncing along like a giant baby with a diaper on, you know, and a bow and arrow and a harp and some kind of an ethereal, celestial, non-material existence. Well, I can tell you firsthand, for me personally, maybe this floats your boat, but the idea of bouncing around in the clouds with a giant diaper on does not motivate me at all. 
I don't even like the image that I get thinking about that. And it doesn't motivate. Who wants to go there? Who wants to be a part of that? Or on a, on a different note, you know, as a kid who grew up in the church listening to sermons from the first time I, I knew what language was, the image that I had burned into my head, and it wasn't, I think, by the intention of the preacher or my parents, but what I conceived of heaven to be and the future world was one long, perpetual, eternal, never-ending worship service where the preacher drones on and on and on and on with 50,000 verses of just as I am at the end, only it goes on forever and ever. And for a kid who sat in the back row in the pew looking at the clock and the minute hand hoping that it would hit and pining away, well, just hit 12 and please don't go long-winded. The idea of heaven being an eternal worship service was purgatory. Not something I wanted from a children's child's perspective. I know better about worship today, but those were the images that I had in my mind, and none of those motivate. None of those capture the heart and make you say, oh, that's where I want to be. So I'm hoping in this message and the next two messages to give us an idea as to what our home consists of. And again, by the Spirit of God taking and opening our eyes to the fact that it's real and it's future and it's promised, that we too would be captivated by what's coming and we would find ourselves living for it. So we're going to be looking this message and the next two on what is our home? What are we supposed to think of when we think of it? That's the question. And I'm going to answer that question in three parts because I believe um, when you boil it all down, that our future home consists of three amazing things. And I'm going to give them to you in ascending order of glory and importance. That it consists of a place, a very real place, a people, so be filled by people, and the highest and most important, the presence of God. Those are three things that will be the essence of our future home. A place, a people, and the presence of God. And we're just going to look at the place this morning. We'll look at the people who will inhabit the place next week. And then after that, the crowning jewel, the presence of God, the face of God amongst his people in the place. So uh, let me just say for those of you who would like me to talk about the presence and make that central, that's two weeks from today. So if you're left kind of hanging, well... Either I deal with it all at once, and we stay here for two hours, or I just do it in three. But I do think that the place has importance for us and should call forth a sense of, I can't wait to go there. So this is about the place. Our home is a, as a place. And I'm going to talk about the place in two ways. I want to talk about it in light of the big story of the Bible, because our story of our future home doesn't begin in Revelation, the last book. It begins in the first book. Many can't put, many don't realize that the Bible tells a singular story. And what is coming has already been. And then secondly, to give you some ideas about what we can think about and anticipate and dream about and long for about that future, future place. Those two things. So at first, the story. I simply want to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of the story 
of home. And you'll see that it's, it's, it permeates the entire Bible. It starts at the beginning and ends at the, at, at the end. Our first home, we're told, and by the way, Genesis is an interesting book because in chapter 1, it's almost like rapid-fire machine gun approach. It just tells you he created light and so forth, light and stars and animals and so forth, all in chapter 1. But then at the end of chapter 1, it starts to go into slow motion and talks about humans, the creation of humans as the crowning achievement, bearing the mark of God. But then it slows down really slow and gives us a second look at the fact that God made us a home. So all of creation is summed up in one chapter, but then it talks about the creation of our own home, namely the Garden of Eden, and in a whole chapter slows down. And this is what our first home is described as, our primal first home of perfection. Genesis 2, 8, and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a couple things just to note in that opening description of our first home in the Garden of Eden. One is that the Lord created it from beginning to end. He's the one who planted the garden. He's the one who put man there. He's the one who made all kinds of pre-selected trees to grow, trees that would bear fruit that were good for food and good for the eyes. In other words, um, God is the one who created the home. That will echo all the way through the Bible. Second thing to notice is that it's fully furnished with beauty, with bounty, and fruitfulness, pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the taste, Completely sufficient. So he fully furnished our first home. Didn't just create it, fully furnished it. And then another thing to note is that it was a physical place. A real place with real fruit trees, not imagined fruit trees. Real fruit, not imagined fruit. Things that could be tasted and smelled and seen and experienced. That Adam was given a real wife, not a phantom wife. A physical wife. It's a physical place. Well, as you... Well, I should back up and just say... The interesting thing, though, in terms of the description of our first home that has, for a long time, it mystified me, was the fact that there was so much verbiage given to the coordinates, the geographical coordinates of where it was. So a guy who's writing on papyrus and not with a big pen who doesn't waste words, took the time after those verses I just read about the garden and tells us where it is, as if that's supposed to be important. Follow me here. I just want you to hang, because there's fruit on the other side of this, and hopefully it will affect your heart. That the writer, after talking about God planting the garden, put a man in the garden, and allowing fruit trees, causing fruit trees to grow, he describes the location of it like this, Genesis 2, 10 through 14. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. So now one river turns to four, but Eden is the source. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah. So there's one river at one location where there is gold and so forth. And then verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It winds, us, uh, it winds through the entire land of, of Cush. 14, the name of the third river is Tigris. We've heard that one before. It runs alongside east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We also know that one. 
Doesn't need definition, by the way. You notice he doesn't add where it goes because it it's obvious both the Jews, ancient times, and also people today. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I've always wondered why in the world is all this description? Why would he waste the time of telling us where this is? And then uh, an epiphany, a, a, a light bulb went on. One time I was, I, I was reading a book called The Pentateuchus Narrative um, by a former professor, and he, he, he aligned the stars. And once I saw the intention behind this, it's like the lights went on, and I understood far more consistently the story of the entire Bible that it tells a singular story. Three of these rivers we know the locations of. The Euphrates and the Tigris run today through modern-day Iraq. We know where they are. Another river, the, 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 what's here called Gihon, it winds its way through the entire land of Cush. Now, Cush throughout the Old Testament is associated with Egypt. In other words, talking about the river of Egypt. So you have rivers in what is now modern-day Iraq, a river which is in um, now modern-day Egypt, and then the other river, which they're not certain of, but they believe is the first one here mentioned, Pishon. It winds its way through the entire land of Havilah, and many believe Havilah was what is now modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now keep in mind that this description is pre-flood. I would guess that a lot of geography changed as a result of God flooding the earth. So what things were pre-flood are different than after-flood. Nevertheless, he takes the time to locate the Garden of Eden with these rivers. The question is why? Why waste ink? But when you kind of place those rivers in their respective zones, in the north, you have Euphrates and Tigris, and you have Havilah in what is now the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and then you have Cush, which is Egypt. You see right down there it says Cush in that circle down below. What's sandwiched in between is the modern-day land of Palestine or the land which would be called the Promised Land. I'll tell you the significance of that in a moment, except to say that it's important to the story of our home. Back to Adam and Eve, you know the story. They made a fatal, critical, cataclysmic error, and instead of listening to the voice of the God who loved them and furnished a home with fruit and beauty, they listened instead to the voice of a liar, and they rebelled, and they were exiled. They were driven out of the garden, and, and angels protected the garden so nobody could get back in, and mankind has been in exile ever since. In effect, we're homeless, which is why no matter how much you try to make this life home, it always feels like something's missing because we are fundamentally, as a race, in exile. We have been exiled from home. But as you've come to know the Lord, the Lord is one who pursues in mercy people undeserving of his love. And so what he does as history unfolds, the history of the Bible, he chooses a man out of all of the pagans of the time, a man by the name of Abraham, and he gives him a promise. And that is, by the way, the second kind of part of of the story of our home. 
is that he picks a sinful man and he makes a promise to him. Now keep Genesis 2 in your mind. He comes to Abraham and he says, gives him a promise saying, to your descendants, that is to the Jewish people, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. Those are two rivers mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. So I believe what's being stated here in light of Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden is that the Lord is saying to Abraham, I'm going to bring you back. It's the whole point of the description back in Genesis 2 is that in light of that, God comes to Abraham and says, remember those two rivers that marked my place of blessing? I'm taking you back there. So God's promising a home. He's promising a home. But, and this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's an important point to make. That what was promised to Abraham, that land between Euphrates and what is now the Nile, was just a token of what God was ultimately going to do. It's really not about the little slice of land we now call Palestine. Because when Paul interpreted the Old Testament promises, this is how he interpreted them. Romans 4.13, he says, For the promise to Abraham, the one we just read way back in Genesis, this is thousands of years later that Paul is interpreting what was said to Abraham. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring um, that he would be heir of... And here it's the world. The world. So Abraham was given a little promise, but ultimately that promise would include the entire planet to be our home. Now back to, back to Abraham, he understood it in the confines of some rivers. But you know, every time that the people of Israel went into the land, it entered into the promised land, into the home, into what I'll call the new Eden. Every time they failed miserably. Every time. They were banished, disciplined, judged because their hearts hadn't changed. And a sinful heart and a sinful life cannot inherit home, the promised land or the new Eden, which brings us to the next major step of the story of home, which is that the same Lord who made the home at the beginning is the same Lord who sent his own son, Jesus Christ to make us fit to dwell home, to indwell, be at home. That is, in one respect, you could see the whole work of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection as the way in which God in his love was making a home for us. To take away the guilt by dying in our place, by giving us righteousness by rising again and sharing it with us, his perfect life, and then giving us the Holy Spirit so that we would have a new heart. In essence, Jesus' work is to create a new people to inherit this home. But the astounding thing is that the death of Christ not only reconciled people to God, but the entire creation itself. Now this verse in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 has always just, every time I read it, it, it just, 
I'm just amazed at the magnitude of what the cross accomplished because here Paul tells us that, that God was pleased to reconcile, that is bring back together, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. That is, the cross itself was a cosmic event by which God would bring to himself not only a people, but also the place. That's what we're looking at. That Christ died to give us a place and died for the people to go in that place. And the same Christ who died to make that place possible and the people fit for that place is the same one who will breathe life into her again and give us a new heaven and a new earth. And that brings us to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which gives us an image, gives us descriptions as to what, although we must be careful in how far we stretch and speculate about the symbolism of this, nevertheless it gives us description where we read at the end of the story, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The entire cosmos will at some point cease. Then I'm going to skip to chapter 22 for obvious reasons. It reflects Genesis 2, where it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. There's rivers, like Genesis 2. Down the middle of the great uh, street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life. Well, there we go once again. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. See, when all is said and done in the Bible, the Bible ends where it began. It began with a garden, and it ends with a garden. Rivers, life, blessing, fruitfulness, abundance, and beauty. So he's, in one sense, you could say that where we're headed is not that much different than where we are. Then in another sense, you could say that we're going to a place that we have been and have not been because it will carry with it the familiarity of the first earth, but at the same time, some differences. So let me come back to the question. That's the story. I just want you to see home is from beginning to the end of the Bible, how God is doing and purchasing and will one day recreate for us a home from beginning to end. But what does it look like? Like, that's the question. What, what, what are we to think of if, if it's not babies bouncing on the clouds or long, dirgy kind of worship services with pews and pulpits and preachers going on and on and on? What is it? Well, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying that any time we talk about what lies beyond judgment, the final day in the new heavens, new earth, it must be with a certain sense of tentativeness. 
can't be dogmatic on it. At the same time, I want you to remember we're focusing on the place right now. We'll focus on the people and then the presence of Christ in the weeks ahead. So let me just say a few things, and I'm hoping that you'll let these fill your heart and mind, that this is what I should be thinking about, my future home that Christ purchased for me. One thing that I think that we can say is this. That the new earth, where we're headed, will retain its identity, yet gain an entirely new eternal quality. Let me say that again. The earth will retain its identity, yet gain an entirely new eternal quality. Now, the basis for this is in Christ himself. Now, follow me. The only thing in the Bible, the only person that we see or have recorded in the Bible, the transition or the change that happens pre-resurrection to post-resurrection is Jesus himself, his body. And there is a, an identity that's retained when he transfers over to the new resurrected life, but there's also dissimilarity and differences. So, follow me here. Before Jesus died, or up to his resurrection, I should say, Jesus possessed a body that had within it the same weaknesses as the rest of the weakened creation. Now, let me be clear in what I'm saying. Jesus was perfectly 100% sinless, perfect. And yet the body that he was in was capable of perishing. It was perishable. It could suffer, it could bleed, and it could die. Like the earth we're living in right now. It can suffer, it can bleed, figuratively speaking, and it will die. But after the resurrection, when Christ is raised in glory and exalted, he is raised, to use the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. He is raised incorruptible or imperishable. The body he has after, the physical body he has after resurrection is impervious to pain, cannot bleed, cannot die. So it's reasonable if we're looking for what's going to happen in the future to use Christ as the key of understanding that as best as possible because he's the only one we see going through the trans, trans, uh, transition transformation in scripture but at the same time what I want you to notice is while there's a difference Jesus is still Jesus he still retains his personality the disciples for the most part can still recognize him that he has raised a male a he he has not raised an androgynous it that is he retains his gender as will we the sense being that while there will be differences, there will also be similarities. And that seems to be supported by the fact that when John sees the new heaven and a new earth, he calls it earth and not Mars or Jupiter. He's like, that's earth. I know that place. Now that should give us a sense of, okay, so in one sense, it's not going to be entirely different than what we have here. And that should, I mean, how can you, want to go someplace you absolutely have no sense of, but yet there's a sense of it all around us because it, it will be earth renewed. 
So there will be similarities, as there was in the life and the body of Jesus. But there will also be amazing differences. And the difference is, the second part of this, the new part is that it will be entirely eternal in its quality. Entirely eternal in its quality. That's what 1 Peter says, verse 4, when it says that your inheritance will be imperishable and undefiled and unfading. In other words, the earth which we experience right now, which is capable of erosion, things being combusted by fire, um, things being blown up, termites, rust, those qualities of decay will not be true of the new earth. That it will have the quality of eternity to it. Consistency, stability, and safety. So there will be no more destructive earthquakes. There will be no more devastating storms, no more droughts, no more plagues, no more mutant cells that cause cancer, no more viruses, no more deadly bacteria. There will be no more raging fires that consume neighborhoods. There will absolutely be no need for insurance because everything lasts. There will be no need for a Clark pest control guy. You will not need to paint metal. The whole point being that it is of enduring eternal quality so that the rhythms of the new earth and the complex ecosystems which I believe will exist and their various um, complexities will exist in perfect and perpetual harmony. They will never slide off balance. There will never be a threat of global warming because it has that eternal, enduring, consistent, stable, secure quality to it. And that is good news and that's motivating. Because nothing now lasts, but everything there will last forever. There will not be a minute, a year, a millennium where anything will die or decay. At least that needs some qualification, but I'm not going to qualify it. Second thing I think you can say about this future. By the way, that, that part motivates me. Okay. This part does too. Namely, that the new earth will still be physical. Not phantom, not merely ethereal, but the earth will still be physical, yet glorified by the presence of heaven. That it's still going to be a physical place, as Jesus had a physical body before the resurrection, so he was raised in a physical body. A physical body that could eat and drink, be touched and touch which tells us there's still going to be sight. Jesus still had eyes. There's still going to be sound, and there's going to be smell, and there's going to be touch. Those things aren't going to disappear because it will be a physical new place that we live. Not, not the ethereal phantom. It's, I believe, fully and firmly when Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, took a cup and said, that I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it with you in my Father's head kingdom, that he wasn't promising some future ethereal phantom cup, but a real cup. And the wedding supper of the Lamb is going to be a real table with real food, with real people, in a real place. Physical. So all of the things that we enjoy physically on this earth, 
the smell of flowers, the listening of music, or the waterfall, or, or the touching of a face, the smell of good food, that all of those things will exist. In fact, they will be amplified by whatever integer because it's a physical place and we will still sing with physical vocal cords giving out physical sounds because it will be a physical place. So we are to envision a physical place, but also beyond that, what makes it different is that physical place will be indwelt or glorified by the fact that heaven exists there. Early in, earlier in chapter 21 of uh, Revelation, we read this, and part of, part of uh, John's vision, he says, um, in his vision, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's the place where God's pleasant dwells throughout the Old Testament. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The sense of it is that heaven, the, the skies roll back, and that which separates heavenly from the earthly disappears. And heaven and earth become one. The spiritual and the physical become one. Right now, there are two different spheres of existence. The people who have gone before us in the faith, who have died, they live in a different sphere of existence we call heaven. Meanwhile, we live down here, but we are separated by those two spheres. At this point, that separation is going to disappear and heaven and earth will become one and the place where God dwells and the main place where man dwells will merge. They will merge. Both realms, heaven and earth, combined together for eternity. So it's going to be a physical place, but what's going to amp it out and blow the doors off of our existence will be the fact that God dwells there, heaven dwells there. There will be no more separation. That should create a sense of motivation. It's, it will be like what we have here, and yet it will have an eternal quality to it. It will be physical, but it will also have heaven within it. And one final one here, and that is that the earth... The way we're to think of it, the earth will still reveal the glories of God, yet do so unhindered by corruption. This part just gives me, gives me the willies a little bit. Um, I, we're told in Scripture that one of the things God wanted to do in creating everything with all of its complex beauty, design, artistry, is to wow us. To wow us not with the creation itself so much as to wow us with his handiwork. So that the heavens would declare the glory of God and the skies above would declare speech about who he is and what he's done. Romans 1, that he's created all these things so that we might see his power and his wisdom. Like that's what creation is supposed to do is create a sense of, of awe about the Lord. But what we see around us right now, which is so amazing and so majestic, is right now in bondage. It's one of my favorite passages when I think about home, found in Romans chapter 8, verse 19. This is the last text. It just says here, for the creation waits everything. Mars and Jupiter and Pluto, the entire expanse of the universe waits. Everything on earth, it waits. It's longing for something. 
who waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And here's the key verse, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You look through a telescope and you see Jupiter, if you ever have an opportunity, it should make your heart just go, wow. Or even pulling up on your computer screen one of those HD images taken by the Hubble telescope deep into space and you just see galaxies like this big should make your heart tremble. Or walking on the John Muir Trail in, in, in Yosemite and looking at the massive uh, faces of granite and spires should just overwhelm you with a sense of grandeur. Now, I don't know what this means, but Paul tells us that those things currently are in bondage. The things that just make the heart tremble, like standing in a grove of redwood trees in Calaveras County and looking and just going, wow, this is amazing. They're in bondage, chains and shackles. So if, if we are wowed by the greatness of things we see now, then what will happen when the Lord, at the resurrection of the children of God, unshackle creation, takes the chains off? My imaginings and speculation, but there will be no place that we will look in all of creation where we will not be utterly blown away by the handiwork of God. Every moment, no matter where we look, we will see His glory reflected, and it will be a worship moment. You won't get away from it. Everything will be euphoric, overwhelming as you behold creation, and you will not see with corrupted eyes any longer. Not by distracted hearts, you'll see it all full technicolors, like going from the old black and white with snow to HDTV. Amazing. So if, listen, here's the thing. If these things that the Scripture teaches us about our home the Holy Spirit brings into here. And I need it in here, just like you need it in here, not just here, but here. Then, as it grows and as it matures and as it increases in longing, then we'll find ourselves like Dorothy and Toto on this narrow path, willing to endure whatever is thrown our way, in addition to the fact that it will pry our white-knuckled fingers off of this life and allow us the freedom to say, I'm so much more looking forward to that than what I have right here. And we'll be able to live with freedom and sacrifice knowing that we have a home, a place in which to live that will be beyond imagination, a physical place full of heaven, eternal, and shouting at us the glory of God. Let me just pray for us. Father, I just ask that you would make that a truth, that as Paul prayed for the Romans, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and me and we may abound with hope. Holy Spirit, make that a reality in our hearts. You're the only one who can take what is unseen and give us eyes to see it. So we ask that you would do so in the name of Christ. I pray. Amen.